This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2016. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 8. Luke's Gospel, chapter 8. And reading from verse 4. And when a great multitude had gathered, they had come to him from every city. And he spoke by a parable. A sower went out to sow. As he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. Some fell among thorns. The thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried. He said with a loud voice, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then the disciples asked him, saying, What does this parable mean? And he said, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to the rest, it is given in parables that, seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. And now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. These have no root who believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. Now the ones that fell among the thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience." Now, this is a very familiar parable, and I'm not going to labor on the whole parable. I want to particularly focus in on just uh, one part of it. Uh, This parable is recorded in three of the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 9, and Mark chapter 4, and Luke chapter 8. And I always encourage you, if you're reading other parables or discourses of Jesus or miracles of Christ, uh, that you try to read them... Uh, in all of the Gospels that they're recorded in because that way you get a fuller picture because one's leave bit out, one put bits in, but you get the full picture. Now, had we read Matthew, we would have seen that Jesus had been preaching and teaching uh, at the house and a great multitude came and uh, obviously he could not get addressing all of them in that situation. So he took them down to the uh, Sea of Galilee, got into a boat, and uh, the multitude then began to come down to the seaside. And I can imagine uh, perhaps a gentle hill coming down to the shoreline and then fanning out there like a, just like a, a natural amphitheater. And, and maybe the slight breeze from the, from the Sea of Galilee would waft his voice uh, so that even the ones at the very back could hear everything he was saying. And he began to teach them in parables. Now, there's a reason for that. Uh, There's a number of reasons, but the primary reason is this. The genius of a parable is that the teacher can both reveal truth and conceal truth in the parable. Uh, 
so you can both reveal truth and conceal truth in the parable. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing here. And the reason for that is simple. Jesus, at this point in his ministry, had become extremely popular. And we know that by the multitudes that would come out at every opportunity where he would be uh, to hear him teach and preach and also to see the great miracles that he did. And all of that was a threat to the religious hierarchy. And, uh, and from that point on, when he became very popular, wherever he would be preaching and teaching, you could be sure within that crowd, there would be scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and elders. And the only reason they were there was to try to trick him and trip him up in his words and find something to accuse him of. They were not there to patiently listen and receive, but actually antagonistic they were towards him, and they were wanting to do that. And so he was well aware of that. And uh, so when he was preaching to a crowd, and uh, he began to speak in parables, because uh, for those who did not want to really hear what he had to say, and for those within that crowd who were totally indifferent to anything he was going to say, they were just there to see a miracle happening. Uh, and to those perhaps who were there uh, who genuinely wanted to know truth and who really actually were there to listen with all of their hearts and to receive the word of God that he was teaching. And at this time he was going through all of Galilee, Galilee and particularly he was preaching on the kingdom of God. And there's many parables about the kingdom of God. And so... Knowing the crowd that was before him, he shared this wonderful parable. It's the king of parables. And uh, Jesus said to them, if you don't understand this parable, how then are you going to understand any parable? So this was a, a key parable. And it's about the kingdom of God. And knowing the, the crowd that was before him, uh, he spoke this parable. And we know that the parable uh, really is called, well, traditionally we call it the parable of the sower. But the truth is, it really should be called the parable of the soils. Because in the parable, the sower is always the same. And the seed is always the same. The thing that changes is the soils. Uh, and the soils, there are four different types of soils. And we know that the seed is the word of God. And we know that the sower, in this context that Jesus is speaking, he is the sower. But anybody who preaches the Word of God or testifies the Word of God or witnesses the Word of God, they are also are the sower of the seed, the Word of God. But the soils, we also know, are the conditions of men's hearts. So every group of people uh, that the gospel is shared to or the kingdom of God is shared with, there will find among them these four types of hearts, uh, the kinds of hearts that Jesus knew was watching and listening every word that he had to say. And so he talked about the, the wayside here, the seed that would fall on the wayside, and the farmers would go out and they would, uh, they would distribute the seed by hand. They would spread it by hand and around the field. And sometimes through the middle of the field, if people had been taking shortcuts, there would be hard-packed ground, and the seed would land on that, and obviously it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't get in. And so it was easy then for the birds of the air to simply come and to snatch that away almost immediately. And so Jesus said, well, that's like those who have a hard heart. 
who will not listen, who don't want to listen, who don't want to hear, who do not want to receive the Word of God. It's easy then for the devil to come and just immediately snatch that Word of God out of their hearts so that it doesn't get in. And then he talked about this stony ground here, those with shallow hearts. Um, whenever we think of stony ground here, we're not thinking of a piece of ground with rocks lying all over it. Uh, we're thinking about what's underneath the soil. In, in Israel, it's generally limestone. And he talked about the soil being shallow, not much depth. And when the seed would go on to that, it would certainly sprout up almost immediately, very, very quickly. It would, the, the, the soil would receive it and it would start to grow. But the trouble was then when the sun came out, when the hot weather came, when the heat was turned up, uh, then it had no depth of earth. And the moisture would dry up and it would wither and die very quickly, just almost as soon as it sprouted up, it would wither and die. And Jesus said that's like those with shallow hearts. They are impressionable. They would be emotional. They would be excitable. And they would receive the word with great uh, passion. But the trouble is, because they have no root in themselves, uh, then whenever the heat's turned up in their life and a test comes, uh, they wither and they wilt and they fail. And uh, then he talked about the thorny soil here, or the distracted heart, we could call this. The distracted heart. And, and that's what I want to focus on this morning. The seed that was sown on thorny ground, the, the here who represents the distracted heart. Now we know that primarily uh, these parables uh, was for those that Jesus was speaking to, the ones whom he was addressing. And uh, we know that it was primarily in these parables about the kingdom of God. Uh, but we also could, in our generation, could say, whenever we share the gospel, <coughs> the seeds of the gospel that we would share, uh, that's what we would be talking about. And there would still be those four types of hearts to either receive or reject uh, the gospel. But also, if I could take that just one step further... We too, if we're not careful, can also find ourselves with a hard heart or a shallow heart or a distracted heart. <coughs> and it's the distracted heart I want to talk about. Jesus is implying here that the thorny soil here has a distracted heart. Too many things has claimed his time his energies, his affections, and his attention. And it has choked the word in his heart. And his life has become unfruitful. And so there's a danger for us, even as believers, that if we give too much attention to certain things, that it can choke our spiritual lives and choke the word in us, and that we become unfruitful. And Jesus points out three things that cause distraction to our hearts. And Mark 4.19 lists them as the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire of other things. These choke the word. And it makes our lives become unfruitful. We bring no fruit to maturity. So let's have a little look this morning at those three areas. The cares 
of this world. There are many things in this world today, right now, if we would allow them, would cause us great care, anxiety, fear, dread. Terrorism is rampant in our cities. Planes are being blown out of the sky. People are being murdered in sidewalk cafes, on beaches, in nightclubs. Sharm El Sheikh was once the most popular tourist destination in Egypt for Europeans. Today it's a ghost town because of the terrorism that happened a while back. Now we see on our television just the other night lorry crashing into crowds of people and mowing down families, men, women, little children, babies. 84 people slain, a trail of destruction. We see Russia again flexing its military muscles, wanting to land grab and take back the Soviet Union, as it were. And already they have taken Crimea, and they're trying to take eastern Ukraine. And they're sending their warplanes close to airspace of various countries testing their defenses. Russia, in case you don't know, has just signed, Putin has just signed an order in Russia that no one is allowed to evangelize in Russia except in a church that has been okayed by the Russian government. You can't do it on the street. You can't do it in your home. You can't witness to anybody from now on in Russia. 7,000 churches, Protestant evangelical churches in Russia are praying and fasting for this to be broken because they realize the consequences of it. China has taken the Spratly Islands in the South China Sea. And even though the world is an uproar about it, China says, we don't care because they're too big for anybody to fool with and they know it. And so they built airstrips there for their military to be there. Why do they want their military there? Because they want to expand their territories. And Japan and the Philippines and Taiwan are getting worried and concerned about this. Syria, Iraq, Libya are basket cases. The European Union is in turmoil. We saw on our televisions the other night, Turkey attempted coup in Turkey. You know, I was thinking the other night that this is a generation that can see wars starting before our very eyes. We can see it on our TV screens, the horror of it. So there are plenty of things if we would allow them to cause us care. But Jesus said, when you see these things take place, he says, do not worry. Don't be afraid. The end is not yet. And so even though there are many things that could cause us to care and dread and be anxious, Jesus says, do not worry about those things. The end is not yet. Well, there is another kind of care. One that's even more distracting than all of that, more insidious, more non-threatening. 
It is the undue, excessive attention to non-spiritual things. And this is what can get us, not that other stuff. This is what can trip us up. Undue, excessive attention to non-spiritual things, legitimate things, things that in themselves and of themselves are innocent and harmless, but if and when they demand too much of our time and energies and attention and affections, then we're heading for trouble. And the fact is we are easily distracted. You can see this in, in the secular world. You can see this particularly with sports stars. These big companies like Nike or Adidas, they, they throw millions at them. But it comes with a price. Because then they've got to do corporate days. And then they've got to do advertising shoots. And then they've got to continually do interviews. And then what they find after a while is that what they're supposed to do on the field is suffering because of what they're doing off the field. And how many of them has perished because of that? The distractions. And some of them has admitted and said, you know, I got away from what I'm really good at and from what I really wanted to do, and I started to do this, this, and this, because I felt I had to because our sponsors made us do this, and they began to lose out. Well, we too can get distracted if we're not careful. But often we feel that our distractions are not the cause of our unfruitfulness because we think our distractions are important and that we must do them. Let me give you an example that you know so well. Mary and Martha. <coughs> Jesus comes with his disciples to the home that he loved to go to, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And as soon as they come through the door, Martha gets into work mode. And who could blame her? The men had come from a distance. She knew they were hungry. There's a lot to be done. So let's get in the kitchen. Let's get cooking. And that's exactly what she did. And Jesus and the men were in the other room. And no doubt Mary started out in the kitchen, maybe come out to set the table, as it were, put the condiments out, and then she heard Jesus teaching. And it was attractive. She thought, this is good. I must listen to this. And before she knew it, she had sat down at the feet of Jesus. She assumed the role of a student. She went into worship mode. Martha was still in work mode. And Martha comes in, she barges in, and if I could paraphrase, she said to Jesus, Jesus, tell my sister to come and help me in the kitchen. That's what her place should be. You're hungry. You need food. I need help. And Jesus looked at Martha. He says, Martha, you're cumbered about many things. You're so distracted. You think that's so important. And it was important. And any other time, it would have been the most important thing, but not right now when Jesus is teaching. <laughs> and he says, Mary has chosen the good part. She's chosen the good part. 
It's so easy to get distracted, even with good things, legitimate things. You know, as preachers and pastors, that's our biggest danger. We get into work mode, forget about worship mode. It's so easy to get busy, 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 busy in church life and church work and the work mode of things that you forget the worship mode. And that's our biggest danger. One that we constantly have to watch for. And that's legitimate. There's lots of things to be done and needs to be done. No question about that. But there comes those moments when you have to switch off the work mode and into the worship mode and take time just to be alone with the Lord and before his word and worship. So Jesus talked about the cares of this world, how they can distract us. The thorns grow up and choke the word in our hearts. Then he talked about the deceitfulness of riches. So Jesus is plainly saying here that riches can deceive. How so? They can give a false sense of security. We start to trust them rather than him. And when we start to trust them, no matter what the them may be, rather than him, then again, we're distracted. Now, there's nothing per se wrong with riches. Money's quite neutral. It's what you do with it, how you handle it, and how you allow it in your life. Do you handle it, or does it handle you? That's the difference. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, There's this moment in Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. <laughs> I'll just get rid of that bit of paper around my feet there. Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, uh, reading from verse 17. This is Jesus. This is also in Matthew 19 and Luke 18. This is Jesus and the rich young ruler. Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, in first century Judaism, and, and this was mainly because of Phariseeism, the prevailing thought was, as far as God was concerned, and being in touch with God and getting to heaven, the main thought was, was to do good. To be good and do good. Notice what he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the Pharisees had got this to such a place where in everybody's mind, if you, if you were a, a pious Jew at all, it's what you did. It's what you were doing count it to get a merit from God. 
to earn what you needed from God. So what must I do? Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now Jesus, even though he loved this young man, we'll see in a moment, but he had to dismantle his completely wrong thinking on this matter. He addressed him as good teacher. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. So in other words, goodness in and of itself is not going to get you what you think you want and what you think you need. It's more than that. And there's only one that's truly good, and that is God. So implying that all of your goodness is not going to stack up at the end of the day. It's not going to be enough ever. Why do you call me good? None is good but one, that is God. And then he said, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Hmm. Again, come back to Phariseeism. The Pharisees believed that they had perfected the keeping of the law so much that it could be kept. In fact, the 613 laws they found in the Torah, they surrounded them by other man-made laws in order to keep every one of them. Of course, this was a great burden to people. But they insisted it can be done. Well, of course, it couldn't be done. And it can't be done. We couldn't keep the whole law. Even James says, if you offend just at one point, God will take it as if you've broken all of his law. That's how the standard is. But here's a young man who thinks, well, I, I've kept all of the law. Well, he didn't keep, thou shalt not covet. Because <laughs> we'll see in a moment, he really coveted his riches. So Jesus is dismantling all the things that he was depending on and hoping in and counting on. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And he said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. But he was sad at this word, and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. <sighs> Every pious Jew believed that you should fast twice in the week. That you should give tithes of all that you possess. That you should pray much. That you should give to the poor. Give alms. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But what the Pharisees believed is, do not give all of your riches away in one go. 
Keep them and dole them out a little bit at a time and you'll get brownie points with God. <laughs> and Jesus hit that nail right on the head. He says, give it all away right now and come and follow me. You see, they believed that riches was the sign of the blessing of God. If you were prosperous, God for sure was blessing you. That was the mindset in first century Judaism. And this young man's face fell. He was sorrowful because he had great possessions. He wanted eternal life. He wanted the things of God. But he was distracted by his riches. This was the one thing that was going to knock him off course. And Jesus knew it. But listen to this. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, they were all listening, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples were astonished at his words. They were utterly shocked. Why? Because that's the way they thought. Remember, this is pre-Calvary. This is pre-resurrection. This is pre-Pentecost. Remember, they weren't thinking of salvation the way we think about it. They weren't thinking about Jesus going to a cross and dying for us. They were thinking about a kingdom that was going to come and they would sit on thrones in the kingdom. In fact, two of them wanted a special place, one at Christ's right hand, one at Christ's left hand. That's what they were thinking. So their mindset was just exactly the same as this rich young ruler, no different. And they too believed, well, if you're wealthy, wonderful, God has blessed you. What's wrong with that? <laughs> Why would you give all that away? That's what they were thinking. They were astonished at Jesus' words, they says. They were absolutely shocked. And then Jesus goes on, doesn't he? But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. And then he takes the biggest animal in Israel. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished. <laughs> They still didn't get it. Remember, this had been steeped into them from the day they were born. So they just didn't get it. They were greatly astonished and said, who then can be saved? Notice what Jesus said, it's hard for those who trust in riches. And that's the point he was driving home. And the rich young ruler was trusting in his riches because he was not prepared to give them up. Does that mean that we have to give everything away that we have? No, Jesus is not saying that to us. He said that to him because he knew that was his Achilles heel. He knew that was the area that distracted him the most. And he proved it. God blesses you with wealth, wonderful, but don't trust it. Don't count on it. Because listen, it could go tomorrow. 
And we have seen umpteen times because of money markets and because of situations and because of pensions disappearing and all. Listen, it could go just like that. And if that's what we trust in, then we're going to fail. But if God is our source and that's the supply, that's fine. But what if that supply shuts off? God's still our source and he'll find another way if we trust him and not our riches. Riches are relative, aren't they, by the way? They're relative. We don't have the riches of a millionaire. But what we do have can distract us to the point where we trust in it rather than him. And this is the point that Jesus is trying to get across. So the disciples were astonished and said among themselves, Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. I'm digressing a little bit, but bear with me. Then Peter began to say to him, because Peter, Peter being Peter, I mean, he was always the first to speak up, wasn't he? And he's thinking, he's thinking, you know, Jesus said to this young man to give everything away. He's thinking, but did we not do that? Listen to what he says. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left all and followed you. And that was true. They were professional fishermen. They had boats. They had people working for them. And when Jesus said to them, follow me, they left everything and followed him. So that was absolutely true. And Jesus answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. The many who are first will be last and the last first. See, fellas, you're thinking this fellas, this rich young brother, he's first. But he's going to be last. He's walked away. And people who look at you think you're going to be last because you're fools because you gave up to follow me. He says, you'll be first. The distractions of life can be many. And then... The third thing was the desire of other things. Mark puts it this way, the desire of other things, Luke says the pleasures of life. Now there's nothing wrong with these things in and of themselves. We all need leisure. We all like pleasure. Hmm? Unless you're weird or strange or something, I don't know, but we all like leisure and we all like pleasure. Even Jesus said to his disciples, come you apart and rest for a while. Jesus did that. Not that he got much rest, but at least he attempted to do that, didn't he? Get in the boat, go to the other side, hoping he was going to get some peace and quiet for a little while, but when he got there, the crowds had followed him around. But at least that's what he wanted. 
Warren Wearsby said, he was a former pastor of Moody Bible Church, but he says one other church he pastored, he says when it came holiday time when him and his wife and children got ready to go off on their holiday, he says there was this woman came to his door as they were packing up the car, and she was quite irate the pastor and his wife and kids were going on holiday, and she says, the devil doesn't go on holiday. <laughs> so he says, I said to her, well, can you show me in the Bible where anywhere it says that we're to do what the devil does? <laughs> A little R&R is good, it's necessary, but too much of it is not good. Listen, when an attraction, <laughs> when it becomes too much, when an attraction becomes a distraction, we've gone too far and we're heading in the wrong direction. When an attraction becomes a distraction, we're heading for trouble. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Demas, I have no doubt, started out with Paul with the best intentions. His heart was in the right place. He wanted to serve God. He wanted to bless the kingdom. He wanted to help the great apostle. He started out with the best of intentions. But working with Paul turned out harder than he ever thought it would be. The hours were long. The travel was tiring. Conditions often were unfavorable, inconvenient. Hungering and thirsting was on the menu lots of times. And so he began to think of this present world and his own home and his own bed, and working his own hours, and living his own life. And the more he thought about that, the more those thorns began to grow in his heart, and it choked the word in there. It choked the spiritual life that he had, and he became unfruitful. When an attraction becomes a distraction. Every one of us have things that distract us. And we usually don't realize for a while that it's a problem. Why? Because it's attractive. It's nice. It's good. It feels right. It looks good. It's legitimate. It's maybe even wholesome. But it begins to take up our time, our energies, our affections, our attention, and our spiritual life gets sidelined. And when that happens, the attraction has become a distraction. And our lives lose its fruitfulness. What are the things that distract you 
and me. A new boyfriend, a new girlfriend, a new house, a new job, new career, new hobby. All of those things are good. Not anything wrong with any of those things. But if they claim too much of our attention and affections and time and energies, and we find that God has taken a back seat, then it's become a distraction. And we need to balance it. I don't mean that we dump it, but we need to balance it. We need to say now, let me get this back into a balance in my life again. The desire of other things, Jesus said, choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And so Jesus in this parable is showing us the various heart conditions. I was reading the other day that the biggest killer in the world today is heart disease. Non-communicable diseases, which a heart disease is, can't be passed on. It's the biggest killer in the world. 68% of all people in the world die of heart disease. Spiritually, we need to keep a check on our hearts. As Proverbs says, out of it flow the issues of life. So we need to keep check on our heart at all times. And we need to find out what is getting undue attention in my life that's causing my spiritual life to be weakened and to be sidelined. And if we see that and catch that on, then we deal with it and we get it back into balance. None of these things I've taught to do are bad in and of themselves. They're good, in fact. But too much attention draws us away from the main thing. Let's keep the main thing the main thing at all times. Let's pray. Lord saw good soil that yielded good fruit, thirtyfold, sixtyfold, a hundredfold. That's what we want our hearts to be. Good soil. And then when the good seed is sown on the good soil, it brings forth a harvest unto maturity. Lord, help us to keep our hearts right. We need your grace. We need your strength. We need your wisdom. We need your Holy Spirit. We need your word to guide us and to guard us. So that our hearts are good soil for your good seed to bring a good harvest in our lives and in the lives of others. So we give you thanks.
Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.